History Notes. Welcome to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. History Notes reports on the people, places, monuments, and events that have shaped our society. Sometimes we examine what has occurred long ago, and at times we look at history happening now. Grab a pad, a pen, or a digital device and get engaged with History Notes. Welcome to another edition of History Notes, brought to you by the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. I'm the Curator of Education, Rodney Dawson, and today we're starting another series and have a wonderful guest that's traveling, uh, well, she comes from the Volunteer State, uh, the eastern part of Tennessee, uh, none other than Dr. Kelly Brown, uh, Chair of the Music Department at Milligan University in Tennessee, and I believe you told me it's near or it sits in Elizabethtown? It's in Elizabethton, yes, Elizabethton. outside of Dawson City. And you're also uh, instruct, you're an instructor there, a professor at Milligan University. Uh, what do you teach and how long have you been teaching there? I teach a variety of things. I teach violin and viola and I conduct the orchestra there. And I teach a variety of other courses in the music major like music history and conducting. Uh, it's hard to believe, but I'm in my 22nd year of teaching at Milligan. Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, I'm trying to detect a southern accent. So does that mean you're not from Tennessee? Because I can't pick one up. I am actually from East Tennessee. So, um, yeah, I live right near uh, where I grew up. Okay. Uh, and so how long have you been teaching there? At least 22 years, uh, you said. How Were you teaching before that in K-12 or any other arena other than higher institutions, institutions of higher learning? Um, I taught at a community college for a while, and I was also a Suzuki violin teacher for a long time. Okay. Well, the reason we're here is uh, you listened to a webinar that I did back in, th we're recording this in uh, September of 2020, uh, and you listened to a webinar we did uh, back in August of 2020 and reached out to me for a wonderful project that you're working on. Uh, the Sound of Hope, Music as Solace, Resistance, and Salvation During the Holocaust and World War II. And I just thought it was an interesting topic. Uh, and so you've written this book, The Sound of Hope. Uh, is this your first publication? This is my second book. In 2005, I published a book that was a bibliographic survey of musical fiction. I was really interested then and still am in fiction where the story takes place in a musical setting like in an opera house or in a bluegrass uh, festival or where music plays a significant role in a character's lives or the plot. I've been in love with books and reading since I could hold a book and I like to collect books and never have enough bookshelves. Understood. And so uh, you've talked about your passion for music. I, I'm, I'm a classical music artist myself, probably nowhere on your level. Uh, but I enjoy um, playing the piano. And um, so you've connected. Uh, show me. Tell me. Tell us more. Tell our listeners how you were able or where it came from that you're able or had the desire to connect music and the Holocaust. Well, I believe that this book and research it has been something that I've been sort of preparing for my whole life, that seeds have been planted along the way. I began to study piano when I was five years old and then organ. I had a brief stint when I was 10 as a banjo player, which a lot of my students don't know. Then when I was 12, uh, I began to study the violin, which of course becomes my 
main instrument. Um, in high school, I had a lot of wonderful English teachers that saw a gift of writing in me and encouraged that. And then when I was a student at Furman University, I had an inspiring German teacher mm -hmm. and she got me interested in all things about the language and the history. And then one day in the early 1990s, I was just browsing in a used bookstore and I pulled this historical novel off the shelf and the main character was a violinist living in Vienna in the late 1930s and she was smuggling false papers to help um, Jewish orchestra members. And that was my first introduction. And from that time on, I just wanted to know more. Okay. You know, I, I enjoy music, all types of music. And one thing, uh, when I want to have solace or I want to escape to a certain place, I listen to music. Uh, and certain songs still resonate with me t today uh, that can take me to a, give me a spiritual high uh, and an escape. So uh, by being such a, an artist and studying music, and uh, we're going to talk later about how uh, the Jewish people uh, use music to cope with the horrific um, uh, dynamics of, of the Holocaust. Uh, why do you think music, or better yet, how does music affect the spirit so powerfully and have such a, a lasting effect? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you totally. Music is incredibly powerful, and that's the ultimate premise of my book. Um, it's like Victor Hugo, the 19th century French uh, poet and novelist said, he said, music expresses that which cannot be put into words and that which cannot remain silent. I, I don't know that I have an, ex an answer of exactly how and why, but I know that it affects people in profound ways because I witness it on a weekly basis. And it's the reason that I've dedicated my whole life to music and um, music education. Mm. Uh, but like all powerful things, it can be used for the greater good or it can be used in destructive ways. And so in my book, I talk about that music became a tool of oppression and manipulation. The Nazi leadership recognized the power of music and chose to, to harness it with malevolence. Um, they forced prisoners in concentration camps to um, form orchestras. Um, the Third Reich established a ghetto known as Terezin, where great numbers of Czech intellectuals and artists were crammed into a closed community that the Nazis turned into um, a twisted cultural experiment where they uh, deceived the International Red Cross and the world into believing that the Jews were being treated well mm. and living full lives. So it was used as a form of propaganda. And, yes. and so how, the Nazis actually funded this program. They would bring in the instruments or uh, bring in the sheet music and uh, supervise the rehearsals. Was it, was it, can you give us a paint a picture of how it, what it looked like? Yeah, well... Uh, when we think about the concentration camps, almost all of the large camps had orchestras of prisoners. We could call it forced music labor, compulsory mm. music labor. Auschwitz actually had three orchestras. Uh, because of the rich musical history of the Jewish people, many of the prisoners in the camps were musicians. And for example, in 1941, um, the Nazis arrested an entire Polish radio orchestra and sent them to Auschwitz. 
There were also instruments there because when people were arrested and deported, they often brought their most prized possessions with them, which, Mm. you know, might be a violin or a flute, something that they could carry. But the Nazis also confiscated instruments throughout all of the territories they controlled in the same way that they pilfered great art. Mm -hmm. So there was always a supply of, of instruments and music there. And they forced prisoners to form ensembles in the camps, primarily to play marching music, so that as the prisoners went in the morning to their work details and back in the evening, that there was this music that they were forced to march to. But the SS were also great lovers of music, and they wanted to be entertained by concerts. There are also examples of them forcing musicians to play near where the trains arrived and near the gas chambers as part of a sadistic plan to manipulate new arrivals so that they would not realize the reality of their situation um, and therefore offer you know little resistance. I devote a whole chapter in my book to the women's orchestra at Auschwitz. Auschwitz had the only orchestra of all women prisoner. Mm. And Alma Rose, who was a gifted violinist and the niece of the composer Gustav Mahler, was forced as a prisoner herself to be their conductor. And she actually discovered that it could be a way to save their lives. That if the Nazi command wanted this music, they had to keep the musicians alive. So she used that leverage, and miraculously, none of the women in her orchestra were murdered while she was head of the group. Well, you just you put it in a different scope, a different lens on it, that people have to resort to, to anything to stay alive. Yes. And, uh, and so uh, I, I imagine that quite often they didn't want to play, uh, but felt compelled to play to save themselves or save family members or... Just to, to right. survive. Yes, they, they had no choice in the matter. Mm. Um, they they played at, at gunpoint. Mm. And um, many of them were so bitter if they survived after the war that they never wanted to play music again. Some did. Um, some could not um, cope in the camps with having to use what was so sacred to them um, in, in this way. Um, one violinist uh, was forced to play the French national anthem while a French prisoner was hung. Um, he was so distraught over his music being um, perverted in this way that he committed suicide. Mm. You know, it's, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm African-American. Uh, you can see me because we're on a Zoom call. Uh, so I often um, delve into the studies of, of my ancestors and um uh, formerly in, enslaved Africans used to turn to music as well um, to send messages to um, escape the moment as a coping mechanism. Um, but it also was a resistance to pain uh, or resistance to a, this transition that they were constantly in. So as I hear you speak, I, I feel or I see similar um, dynamics going on. So um, how was music used as a weapon of resistance and expression by Holocaust vi- victims? And, and if you're creating something to resist, what's the danger in that? Yeah, so I think music um, did emerge as a counterpoint to, to suffering 
and hate as a way of um, providing solace, fortitude, and, and resistance. Um, because songs of resistance could be secretly transmitted orally from one prisoner to another, could be scribbled down on a scrap of paper, and it, it was documenting their indescribable circumstances. So it was also the, a way to resist because music was creative and it was part of your imaginative mind. And so it withstood Nazi attempts to exploit or to silence it. A good example of this can be seen in the life of Herbert Zipper. He was an extremely gifted musician, a Jewish musician from Vienna, and he was sent to Dachau. When he first arrived at the camp, the SS guards were forcing prisoners to sing as a cruel game to torment them about their circumstances. And when they ordered Zipper to sing, he belted out loudly Beethoven's Ode to Joy about, you know, solidarity, the brotherhood of, of all mankind. And he also wrote a resistance song that was a parody of the words over the gate of the camp, Arbeit mocked fry, work will set you free. And this song, known as Dachau Lied or, or Dachau Song, it passed from prisoner to prisoner, and then eventually it was passing from camp to camp as prisoners were transferred. And it really um, was an act of defiance. But of course, it was quite dangerous to do these kinds of acts of defiance you know, if you were caught doing them, um, I mean, you could just be murdered right on the spot. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at um, the end of the war, end of World War II, uh, what are we approaching, 75 years ago, or uh, we're right at 75 years ago. So uh, some people will say that's close to a century. Uh, that's a long time ago. And I have my own answer to this question. But uh, as an educator, uh, as myself, a former K-12 educator, what would be the purpose or what's the importance of teaching the Holocaust in our K-12 schools? There have been several studies in recent years that have shown a shocking lack of knowledge about the Holocaust. Uh, and just this past week, results were released from an important survey that looked at all 50 U.S. states. And it found that among millennials and Generation Z respondents, that 63% did not know that 6 million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. And 48% of them could not name even one concentration camp or ghetto, even though there were more than 40,000 of so them. So you're saying two out of three did not know it existed and close to half couldn't name a concentration camp. Right. And I think the thing that most disheartened me is that 11% said they believe that the Holocaust was caused by the Jews. So this is why we need mandatory Holocaust education in our schools and why we need to draft curriculum that is relevant and engaging. When we teach World War II history, as you said, it seems ancient. And, and possibly irrelevant to young people. Maybe the way the Civil War did in my generation, mm -hmm. you know, we were in class and it seemed like something so long ago. But we have to remember that the students we're working with today, they don't even have a memory of 9-11, mm -hmm. you know, a, a recent tragedy. And so right. their generation hasn't even been shaped 
by this. And as the number of living Holocaust survivors dwindles, this collective memory, this visceral memory that they carry with them, that they have sort of held in trust for our society, it has grown fainter with each passing year. So we need to focus on Holocaust education to keep the memory alive, but, but not for the sake of just reciting historical facts, but for informing our present and our future. We need to set uh, the moral compass for our youth towards social and racial justice. I just uh, spoke to a local school district uh, a couple of days ago about historically based literacy, using history uh, to teach several subjects, math, science, social studies. And so uh, you just exemplified what I said. I wish we'd have had this podcast beforehand. I would have sounded smarter. Um, but as a former teacher or the teachers that I spoke to in the classroom that are teaching to the test and have to cram in things, now we have this online learning environment. How can you help a, a teacher uh, incorporate or implement this into the classroom, into a lesson plan? Well, I know that students can really engage with music. Music's an important part of, of their lives. Um, and I think, again, it ties with the way that music seems to speak and connect to us in a deep way. Think about how songs and song lyrics stay with us our entire life. I might not remember what I ate for dinner last night, but I can remember song lyrics from my childhood. And we see that a lot of times patients with dementia can have amazing recall with music um, when so many of their other memories are inaccessible. So I recommend incorporating music in a variety of ways, using the stories of the musicians from the camps and ghettos, listening to the compositions that were written in the camps and, and ghettos, having students work on multimedia projects that include music and art along with diary excerpts. This helps bring the subject alive and, and help it to be relevant. I wrote a paper last year for a German studies conference about the use of music in Holocaust education. Um, and because we recreate music in the moment, it's created in real time, even though it was composed a long time ago, mm -hmm. I believe that makes it a living artifact and therefore a great conduit for teaching history in a vibrant way. Okay, well said, well said. Um, you know, we did the webinar, Teaching Controversial History. Certainly the Holocaust can be sensitive. It can invoke, evoke some emotions in um, not just the students, but the teachers. Uh, so how can you help, a, or what advice can you give a teacher on how to support their students uh, who are having an intense emotional reaction to learning about the Holocaust? That is such an important um, topic, and I really thank you for asking it. I think the best gift that we can give our students, no matter what age they are, is to give them permission to feel whatever it is that they feel, mm. to make them know that whatever emotions arise, whether it's anger or fear or sadness, that these are okay and that we can sit with them together. We do a disservice to our students and ourselves when we run from negative emotions, when we try to block them or, or suppress them. They are a critical part of our humanness. They are necessary 
um, that we feel them and that we even lean into them. There, there is healing in that. So give them a permission slip, maybe even a literal one that you write on a paper that says mm -hmm. you have permission to feel whatever you feel. And we are here together in it. That's a great idea. You should have taught Kate 12. Uh, and, you know, I um I was talking to some I took a course uh, recently from a retired uh, local college professor. And I was uh, one of maybe only three African-Americans, but it was a racially sensitive course. Uh, and the majority of the 40s or so people in there were uh, Caucasian. And uh, there was a, a white lady sitting beside me. And this was about uh, the wrongs that had been done to uh, African-Americans at the hands of um, uh, white folks. And she she turned to me and she told me how she felt so terrible and she felt so convicted in this class, so so much guilt in this class. And it prompted me to read uh, a study where it said um, uh, our, our white brothers and sisters that are taking a class that's racially sensitive absorb the information better from a white instructor because they feel less guilt. And so if you are um, a teacher who feel, uh, let's say you're a teacher of German descent and you see this content and you feel this guilt, what can you say to that, that male teacher or that female teacher or any teacher um, that is hesitant about approaching this subject because of that self-guilt or that, that transference? Yeah, I, I think sometimes we um, have to get outside of our comfort zones, even though it's hard, um, and prepare, um, study, um, think about ways that you can uh, grow grow personally before you reach out to uh, ask students um, to grow, mm -hmm. um, and 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 talk with other people, talk with um, of sur survivors if mm -hmm. you can, or second generation uh, survivors. Okay. Give a self-assessment and be, how about give yourself a permission slip? Yes. Yeah, that's all right. Well, you know, I want to take a break and uh, we'll come back. I want to ask you some more questions, but we're talking with uh, Dr. Kelly Brown of Milligan University in Tennessee. And when we return, I want to talk to you about uh, what you talked about with sharing music and has emerged as a counterpoint to hate. I think that's interesting. I think the audience can uh, benefit from listening to that. So uh, please remain with us and we'll return in just one moment here on History Notes. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To learn more about this podcast and many more, visit our website at www.greensborohistory.org. Now let's listen in to History Notes. Well, thank you for returning. I'm Rodney Dawson, again, the uh, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum. And this is another edition of History Notes and having a great conversation uh, with my new friend from the Volunteer State from Tennessee, uh, I won't pick on you and say you haven't won a national championship in, since the 90s with Peyton Manning, but we'll let that go. North Carolina, we okay. haven't won one period. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're talking about uh, your, your book, um, The Sounds of Hope, and where you use music uh, to teach the Holocaust. And we were left off talking about the K-12 schools. Um, but when I was reading some of your, your writings, uh, one of the things that kind of stuck with me is that you said 
music emerged as a counterpoint to hate. You talked earlier about how uh, the Jewish people uh, use music uh, as a form of resistance and, and to stay alive, uh, but a counterpoint to hate. And do you believe that in today's environment, particularly this is why I asked this question, do you mean, do you believe that this still remains the case today? And if so, how? Yes, I think that music can still serve as a counterpoint to hate and, and really suffering of all kinds. In, in this global pandemic, we have seen Italians in lockdown come out on their balconies and make music together. We're seeing musicians all over the world reach out in concerts from their living rooms. And these musical events have sustained us during this dark time. We also see musicians coming together to fight racial injustice. Back in June, a group of violinists and cellists came together to join protesters in numerous cities to voice their outrage at the killing of Elijah McClain, who was a 23-year-old black man and a violinist who died after police in Aurora, Colorado put him in a chokehold. Um, so yes, uh, we need music now more than ever and our students in school need music and art and theater. All right. Well, uh, what about the funding for music programs? Is it still dwindling in our school systems or do you do you do believe do you see an opportunity for it to turn around? It it is still a challenge. Um that's for sure. Um it's not always seen as a priority by state education authorities. Um it's not always seen as a priority at the national level in our country. Mm -hmm. um, there are many other countries who do a lot better promoting the arts in their society and in, in their schools. So I, th I think we just have to keep putting it out there and saying, yes, it is vital. It is not optional. Our students have to have it. Is Milligan University well-received and appreciated in Eastern Tennessee? Yes, it really is uh, in a variety of ways. We have a great reputation in the arts. We also have a great reputation um, with the um, teachers that we're turning out. Um, I supervise a lot of student teachers and, and we get such great feedback about how prepared our student teachers are to, to work in K through 12. Okay. And, you know, and you're considered an expert, uh, a subject expert in this matter. And so you've traveled the country and you've spoken uh, different places. And so if you, I want to kind of lighten, lighten it up, as you travel speaking, where well, this may not lighten it up, but as you've traveled speaking on music and the Holocaust, what's been the most challenging thing? And then follow that up with what's been the most rewarding thing? I think I would have to say that the answer is really the same for both of them because I've found that many people are not aware at all of music's role during the Holocaust. And so as I'm describing it, I watch them just take in the just unfathomable suffering of, of these musicians and the situation that they were put in and how music could be used and in such a destructive way. And it's hard. And it's hard for me personally after all these years. Mm -hmm. I decided a long time ago that if I could ever tell their stories without weeping, that it was time for me to move on to another topic. I did not mm -hmm. want to become callous in this. And I'll have to say that I'm still weeping. 
when did you, when, how many years ago did you start? When did you say that to yourself? Um, I really started in earnest about 15 years okay. ago um, with speaking and, and writing. You know, and at the same time as I watched people learn about the stories of hope or the way that music has sustained and uplifted people and, and they connect these people that that's really rewarding for me and even though this is such a a difficult subject to read and write and talk about i also want to keep pointing people back to to the hope inherent in it and that's why i called my book the sound of hope i ultimately i just want to bring honor to their memories i think bearing witness to the stories from the holocaust is, is a holy calling and and i want to if i can to lift back the folds of this darkness to reveal moments of, of light and beauty to to discover where grace abounds all right well that's a great endeavor and uh, it sounds like you're you're progressively going forward and doing that uh i would love to have been one of your students. The Sound of Hope, Music as a Solace, Resistance and Salvation during the Holocaust and World War II. Dr. Kelly Brown is here. And uh, we've talked about your book. Um, is it exclusively about the Holocaust? Well, while it mainly covers the Holocaust and the plight of Jewish musicians, it also covers some other stories during World War II. Uh, one of those is about the great composer Shostakovich. And he was writing his seventh symphony, what becomes known as the Leningrad Symphony, uh, during that horrific siege of Leningrad. And it became a patriotic anthem for his fellow Russians that helped sustain them um, through the end of the war. And I have another chapter which discusses the formation of a vocal orchestra in a concentration camp on the, an island, the island of Sumatra. There were hundreds of English and Dutch women and children who were imprisoned by the Japanese as they were fleeing from their homes in Malay and Java and Singapore. And so they were put in these island um, concentration camps. And unlike the other orchestras we talked about, they had no instruments. And so in this one camp, um, two musicians came together and, and they um, formed a vocal orchestra. They wrote out great works for piano and orchestra for voices, and, and they sang them. All right. Well, you know, I'm going to get you out of here on these, and I'm going to bring down the temperature a little bit. Uh, you've been teaching for 22 years at Milligan University, uh, an accomplished musician yourself, uh, chair of the music department there. So, Doctor, I'm talking to, I'm asking this question to Dr. Kelly Brown, chair of the music department, professor at Milligan University. What does a good day look like for that person? I have wonderful colleagues that I work with, and it's such a great experience as we sit down and create performance opportunities for our students and our community. And, and I love working with students, getting to share music with them, seeing their hard work pay off, seeing them make connections from material that they've had over a, a variety of courses, seeing that all come together in a whole. And even now, as things are not able to be the same, you know, we're in class, but we're 
social distancing, mm-hmm. we're wearing masks, we're not giving concerts for a live audience. Even with all of those, we are still engaged in the wonderful art of music making. Yeah, sounds like you appreciate it. So let's take all that away. What does a good day look like for Kelly Brown? Well, I'm a to-do list kind of person, so I like mm-hmm. to make lists and maybe lists of my lists. Have you been uh, talking to my wife? <laughs> <laughs> so I like being productive. I like getting lots of things checked off of the to-do list. But then I also like taking a break from that, going out onto the back porch with a hot cup of coffee and a good book. And do you check out Tennessee volunteers playing football? I don't really. So sorry to the Vols fans. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I've been up there one time. I tried to go to the game. I couldn't get a ticket, and it was a group of us, but we were able to hang out with the volunteer Navy, or at least watch them and then hang out with them in a local restaurant. So Okay, uh, well, that's cool. It's a big experience. I've never seen anything like it. But yeah, uh, I am a baseball fan, and I'm a lifelong uh, fan of the Dodgers. Okay, that's all right. I, that was my team growing up. Still my team. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and, um, you know, we're going to be working again, working together again. And uh, tell us, uh, tell the folks out here, our listening audience, where they can learn more about you. We can pick up your book, The, Sounds of Hope, the Sound of Hope, and uh, maybe some social media handles that you have. Yeah, so my book's available on Amazon and the other big online retailers, but I encourage people to buy from your local independent bookstore. They are such a treasure to us, and if there's not one in your community, um, independent bookstores all over the country are fulfilling uh, orders Mm -hmm. online, Uh, so I hope people will support them. Um, You can find my Um, Book on Facebook, The Sound of Hope book. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Thank you for that. And thank you for that plug with our small businesses and our local mom uh, bookstores. Uh, Well, Dr. Brown, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for spending some time here here with us on History Notes. Uh, And we look forward to working with you uh, in the future. And, uh, you know, prayers going out that you can meet in person. Well, meet and hold your in-person face-to-face concerts and uh, show the great work of those students of yours. So thank you again for being our guest. Thank you, Rodney. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. And um, congratulations on the wonderful work that the Greensboro History Museum does. Thank you. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. Just as you visited for this podcast, continue to go to www.greensborohistory.org and select the Discover and Learn tab to listen again or learn more about many other subjects. We also invite you to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please stop by the museum when you can. We're located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. Hours vary, so visit our website or call 336-373-2043 for details. Once again, thank you and keep tuning in to History Notes.